0: Good morning, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a pleasure to bring God's word, and thanks for joining in. Just uh, what a what a beautiful day today is, and let us rejoice and be glad in what God has created. We'll be in Job chapter ten. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, and let's pray. Thank you, Father that you are an awesome God, that you are everlasting and eternal and almighty. And we praise you because you are glorious and you have done amazing things and we only see the edges of your ways and yet you reveal yourself to us and you delight to be found when we seek you and you promise that when we seek you, we will find you if we seek you with our whole hearts. And, and Lord, you know how double-minded we can be, how forgetful, how petty, how weak and weary, and yet you come to us, you call out to us, you pick us up, and you exalt the humble. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown us. And we praise you for your victory and for your deliverance from death, from uh, all troubles of life, that in the midst of them, we can look to you and find hope and help in time of need. And thank you for your grace, that it is sufficient for us, that even if you allow a messenger of Satan, you will Uh, uphold us. You will help us. You will teach us your ways and enable us to walk in your paths. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to the hearts of everyone who hears this message, who reads your word together today, and that you would be glorified and exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we all know what it is to feel weary and tired, and we've all experienced aching joints and muscles after we exerted ourselves a bit much or we were out of shape, or uh, that good workout where you're like, "Oh, I'm so sore." You do something and you go, "Man, I'm going to be so I'm going to be feeling this tomorrow." Especially like working down on the ground, pulling weeds, and you just discover that you have muscles where you didn't even know they could exist. And in addition to that soreness and weariness, some have medical conditions and painful stuff that is chronic, that is really. It's only treatable, not, inc- not curable. And it's one thing to have an occasional stab of pain, but for it to be prolonged and, and painful, that can wear us down. It can wear away a joyful attitude, just like water dripping can wear away stone. It's like you can have a positive outlook, but when you feel burdened, you feel weary, it, it can just overwhelm us. And we can go from believing that relief is in sight to wishing things would get better or then even feeling they will never get better. No matter what I do, it's just going to get worse from here. And Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, she said she was weary of life because of her daughters-in-law that were living with her, the, the wives of Esau, Perhaps as Solomon wrote, their contentions were like a continual dripping that just, she was really struggling to live with these ladies. And she said, if Jacob marries a woman of the land, what good will my life do me? She's just thinking, man, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't do anything about the choices that Esau's made in his life, but I want Jacob to at least marry a woman I approve of so I can dwell together in peace with someone. Muscle aches, compa- aches and pains, family dramas with daughter-in-laws, they're small issues really compared to what Job faced. In a moment, he lost his wealth, his health, his family, his children, and even his wife told him to curse God and die. His friends come and they find fault with him. They, they really blame him for his struggles and say, well, the, the problem lies with you, Job. You've sinned in some way and you, you need to seek the Lord which he had. And that was bad enough. And then it seemed like God was even silenced that he wasn't hearing Job's cries covered from head to toe in boils that were oozing and itchy. Job is just sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping himself with a piece of a pot. He finds no relief day or night. And he didn't have the benefits of reading God's word. He didn't have the benefit of the gospel, the hope that we have. Through Christ Jesus. And the awesome thing is is that we don't have to suffer to the degree that Job did for God to see our pain and to, to draw near to us so that we can be delivered, that we can be helped. And God would see Job restored. He would see him uh, re- reconciled with his friends even, and blessed beyond all expectation. And our pains, they may be small in comparison, but God cares about us. He knows us and loves us. And it does not escape his notice. Someone can be masking pain with a smile. They may not say what's really bothering them or how they're hurting, but God knows about those pains too. And because he cares about us, he will draw near to minister. And the book of Job, like all the scriptures, it offers us the timeless hope of God who is merciful, faithful, gracious and compassionate. He knows in like he's he became a man in the person of Jesus. He knows what it's like to suffer pain, to have grief, as Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Let's begin in Job chapter 10 starting in verse 1. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me; show you Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Job is speaking with this intense suffering, and he brings forth his hatred of his life. He doesn't hate himself. He says, my soul loathes my life. He loved himself, and that's why he hated his life. He has this discomfort, pain, and grief. It's like he didn't hate life in itself, but he wanted a better one and this stubborn self-love of man, it permeates to our souls. That's what his soul was saying in that time. Life had become bitter. He was determined to give free course to his complaint, and he expressed freely what he felt before his friends and God. As we read the statements of Job, he's really raw. He's very vulnerable. What he felt was real. It wasn't always right what he said, but we should give him grace because of the intense suffering he was under, that duress. And he exceeds most people in his sincerity and willingness to share how he's feeling when his friends were criticizing him to his face and they were coming against him, uh, really opposing him. And yet he's like, I'm just going to keep saying what is true. I'm going to keep telling the truth about my life. I'm not going to shy away from the difficult, painful subjects. I'm going to talk it through. And he didn't imagine that he could have an audience with the almighty. In the previous chapters, he talked about taking God to court. Who can take God to court? Who can preside or judge over him? Who can be an arbiter or a mediator between man and God? And we know the man, Jesus Christ, but Job did not know him. He had not been revealed yet. And this pain that Job suffered, it prompted his urgency He says, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. If I'm guilty of a crime, Job was saying, please show me what it is. Let me know what I've done wrong. And let's remember that Job had not read chapters one and two of this book. He didn't know what was going on in the heavens. He didn't know how God was allowing this because of his righteousness to show that he is merciful and compassionate. He's really in the dark, why God would contend or quarrel with him when he feared God, when he served him. He walked uprightly, he kept himself from sin, like this was a huge effort of his life. And his friends are telling him, you're suffering because of your sin. God does not condemn or pronounce guilt upon a person without valid reasons. He doesn't contend with men like a divine gleeful bully who likes to throw his weight around and make people miserable. That's not the, that's not God of the Bible. It's man who's guilty of being contentious with God. It's man who is contentious when we disagree with one another. From Job's limited perspective, it's like, God is against me. God's despising me. God's finding all my faults and And he can see everything, so it's not hard for him. Why is he picking on me? As Jesus showed understanding of the law and prophets by listening and asking questions in the temple, Job displays his understanding of God by asking questions. Everything that he says is answered in the negative. Like God is not oppressing for fun. He does not smile on evil counsel. He's not a man who's short-sighted or just has a few years left to live, and so he's going to... Bully someone or, or take extreme actions. He believed in the sovereignty of God who knows and sees all things. None can deliver from his hand. Job was was sure of this. And since this is true, since God knows everything, he's like, why does he hunt me down? Why does he put me under the pump as a blameless man? What seemed to be oppression was really compassion and grace in disguise we're the short-sighted ones. We're the ignorance one, ignorant ones who deny God his love and wisdom. It's like we want to be left alone without anything that prompts us to further maturity. We would rather avoid pain and trouble and not have to seek God than to be pained so that we will be driven to seek him because that shows us how little we actually seek God when things are good. And what Job felt was tearing him apart was actually working by the grace of God to put in him humility, wisdom, and patience that he lacked at this time. He was a blameless man, but there was still refinement that God was doing. Job 10 verse 8, your hands have made and fashioned me in intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay and will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor and your care has preserved my spirit. God is our creator, the one who knit us each together in the wombs of our mothers. And Job explained the human body. I love how he says this, an intricate unity. Of all these various parts and organs that come together to make a whole person. Combined with a living soul and a unique personality. Spiritual beings created in the image of God. It's like you are more than a body. You're more than hair and teeth and skin and legs and arms. You're a person created in the image of God. God first formed Adam from the dust of the ground. And he took Eve from man. And then All other people have come from woman, right? And according to his marvelous, miraculous design, a man and woman come together and fluid produced in man becomes fertile for reproduction in a woman. Job uses this uh, example here of milk and curdling of cheese. It's really a vivid metaphor of how a baby is formed and clothed with skin knit together with bones and joints, tendons and ligaments, with all the different organs and uh, tissues coming together to make one body. God granted Job life and favor and kept him according to his divine care. And David wrote this in Psalm 139, 14 through 18 on the same subject. He says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashion for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you knowing that God has created us, designed, and cared for us, that he has brought us to this day where we are walking, talking, witnesses of his glory and grace. This ought to impact our perspective concerning others and concerning ourselves, that I, am, I have been created by God, and that person's been created by God. And we ought to be grateful to the Lord for what he has made. And if we will rejoice over the day he has made, we should rejoice over all those that he's created and whom he loves. Job 10 verse 13. And these things you have hidden in your heart, I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Job knew there was nothing he could do to escape the searching gaze of God. He felt like God watched his every move. He had hunted him down and like a lion pounces on his prey, God was looking for his faults. And when he, he sinned, he oppressed him or he, he punished him. There's people who look to score points with God by doing good things. Now, Job, he lamented the hopelessness of this aim because God took note of every wrong thing that he did. And he's like, there's no way I can get out from under this, even if I do the right thing. I'm still in trouble with God because of my sin. When I went to primary school, if the teacher saw you talk to a classmate or throw a paper clip at someone or pass a note, they would just turn and write your name on the board. And they didn't have to say a word. You knew what that meant. That meant you were, you were getting a warning. And then if you did something again that day, there would be a tick placed next to your name. And God forbid you should have three ticks in a single day because that meant that you had to go to the principal's office and have a talking to, and likely your parents would be notified. And that was like the worst thing in the world that could happen to a year three kid, um, and I think, well, maybe because of who my parents were. And like, I know that they would not be happy if they were getting a call from the principal. So I, I wanted to please my parents. Job was like a frustrated boy in class who was the best behaved boy who had, was highly motivated to do the right thing. Tried as hard as he could to please God. Yet he had three checks by his name. He had been taken to the principal's office and, and he felt like, man, everything I've done wrong is being held against me. And nothing that I've done is right is being remembered. Each pang of grief over the loss of his children, his servants, his wealth, his health, every time a passerby walked by and shook their head in disgust, spit at him, or opened their mouths and criticized him as the cause of his own trouble, when the itch was unbearable, it was like God was frowning at him again. God was just twisting the knife. And he struggled with this pain and this idea that God was against him. He just had this condemnation hovering over him. Most people haven't suffered at all like Job had, but many have felt like he did. As a result of pain and suffering, they felt that God was heavy-handed and severe in his methods. Have you ever thought that? Many have wrongly accused God of evil because he has allowed evil. But evil is completely contrary to God. The Bible teaches us while God does chasten believers for sin, because of what Jesus has accomplished, those who are born again, you're no longer under condemnation for your sin. Paul mused, who can deliver me from this body of death? He said this in Romans 7:25 through chapter eight, verse two, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Because of sin passed down from Adam, who sinned before God, and because of our own sin, our bodies will die. They will go the way of the earth, and each soul that sins will surely die. Jesus has delivered all who trust in him from condemnation and guilt for our sin by the gospel. He's made us free of all condemnation and death. By faith, his righteousness has been imputed to us, given to us, And we have been redeemed and granted eternal life. This is the glorious gospel that we have through Christ Jesus. And we as believers, we should not give space to think that troubling circumstances are condemnation for our sin. Rather, if we have sinned, it is to chasten us to repent. Having repented, we can walk uprightly because sin is not the only reason why we suffer. That is borne out in the case of Job who was a blameless and upright man. In the case of Jesus, who was righteous, no one was righteous, no, not one, but then Jesus came, who is for us righteousness, and he suffered crucifixion. So, and it wasn't for sin, it was for our sin. God has redemptive purposes in everything he allows us to suffer. It's faith in him that holds us close in those times. He delights to show compassion and mercy. That's what God delights to do. Praise him for that. Job 10 verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. Since God knew Job before he was fashioned, he's like, why bother to create me at all if, if all it was, was to suffer? The words of Job hearken back to that What he said in chapter three, when he cursed the day of his birth, he wasn't suicidal, but it's like, I want to be anywhere, but here, I would rather have not been born than to have to go through this sorrow, this overwhelming trial, never having been born was welcome idea instead of having to face such pains in Job. We really see a man drowning in regret over his life and his existence, and there's no comfort at all in regret. Regret chains us to the past. It always is making us look back with hopelessness and wishing we had done something different or something different had happened. We're trying to get a sense of control over our life now that feels out of control. And we hope that we just wish, we fantasize that if we had done something different or someone had done something different, we could have a different result. It's like Job wants a timeout. He's begging for God to relieve his sorrow. My days are few. Just let me live in comfort a little while. And without the revelation of God's word in the old and new testaments, Job was in the dark about the eternal state and what it's like. Jesus, he's the revelation of eternal life. He is the light of the world and in him is no darkness at all. Job's looking into eternity and just saying, it's going to be dark where light's darkness. It's it's a place of almost chaos and a void. But we are blessed to have the good shepherd who will guide us into eternal life where there is only light in him. Outer darkness is where those who are condemned by their sin will go. In that uh, Psalm 23, David talks about the good shepherd or the shepherd leading him beside still waters into pastures of green, and we can safely navigate the valley the valley of the shadow of death. And I love how the pastures are described as green. Do you know that to see colors, our eyes need light? We can't see colors without light. It's like if I'm in my room and I'm trying to figure which socks are black and blue, it's very hard to do. The only way I can do it is if I bring them into the light. And so when the psalmist says pastures of green, that tells me It's day. That tells me it's light. And in Christ, there is no darkness at all. Because the day spring Jesus has visited our hearts, we always have his light. And we can always say he leads us in pastures of green because we can see clearly because we are in the light as we walk in the light. He's the one who's opened our eyes to see. So praise him that those pastures are green. Job 11 verse 1. Then Zophar, the Namathite answered and said, should should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. We've come to Zophar's first address of Job. He is the harshest critic, the most abrasive of the bunch. Eliphaz, the first friend, he accused Job of resenting or resisting the discipline of God. Bildad claimed that Job doubted the righteousness of God's justice and he appealed to the father's The ancients who had gone before and who had searched these things out about how God was and that when he makes a decision, it's right. Now, Zophar, he's battering Job with self-righteous accusations. His insolence really only exceeded by his ignorance of Job's situation. Ironically, we all have a lot in common with Zophar when we exhibit zeal without knowledge, when we inwardly cheer at the thought of the wicked getting what they deserve this cruel satisfaction in the guilty feeling pain and to censure someone as guilty because they're in pain. It's like Zophar saying, blah, blah, blah. You're full of empty talk, Job. No amount of speaking can vindicate you. Your words are as empty as your head. Your lies and boasts are ridiculous. Zophar says, Job, you're claiming to be innocent before God. And and I want God to say something because He'll show that you're a fraud, that everything you're saying is way off. Oh, if God would speak, He'll see. Th- he sees things the way I see things, which is a pretty scary proposition. In Job's, uh, in Zophar's eyes, Job spoke without wisdom, without knowledge of God, who sees both sides of everything. He's like, God knows you, Job. He knows about you things that you don't even know. I mean, is that true? Sure, it's true, but it wouldn't be to condemn Job. It would be to vindicate him in the end as we keep reading. I like that phrase though, that that God sees both sides. That's what the Hebrew suggests there. And the law, it was engraved on both sides of the tablets of stone. It's like, you're looking at the, the commandments. You need to look at both sides of them. There were commands. If you had only looked at the front and they were laying behind, I used to imagine them like displayed behind some plexiglass. Like we don't want everyone touching those or breaking them. And he, you're looking at them. Okay, I need to do that. Okay, I've done them. They go, what did you see the other side? Oh, no, I didn't see the other side. It reminds me of the, the rich man's interaction with Jesus. Jesus says, have you kept the law and the prop?" Oh yeah, I've kept the law since my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you lack Sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. There was another side that the rich man didn't see that God saw. The man had kept all the laws engraved on tablets of stone, but he refused to obey and believe and follow the lawgiver, Jesus Christ. He gave him one command. He said, sell what you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasures in heaven. Come follow me. Man wouldn't do it. That was the other side that the man had not seen. And in lacking that one thing, he lacked all. Since saving faith in Christ is demonstrated by obedience to him. Verse six, it shows Zophar's lack of compassion as he sits really in God's judgment seat. God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. As if anything, God exacts from us can pay for our sin. It can't. Nothing we do can atone for our sin. David wrote in light of God's mercy and grace on this matter in Psalm 103, verse 10, he wrote, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. So, so far looking like, you know, God hasn't even punished you half as much as he could. He he's exacted very little uh, compared to what you deserve. David's taking the exact opposite view. Yeah. Uh, God has not punished our according us punished us according to our sin, but he is showing mercy. His his mercy is so great that he removed our transgressions from us. So a very different tone, very different perspective. Blessed is the man who is righteous by faith in God. There's nothing to exact because Jesus has paid all. We can't contribute anything to the forgiveness of our debts. No matter what we suffer, there is no penance to be paid because Jesus has paid it all by his grace. Job 11 verse seven. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Though Zophar was in the dark concerning Job... There is timeless truth in his assessment of God. The things he says about God are true. His sovereignty, his wisdom, that his thoughts are above ours, his ways past finding out. We can't even begin to scratch the surface of the deep things of God. Man has discovered a lot of things like at what temperature sand is melted to become glass. That's 1,700 degrees if you're curious. How to launch satellites into space and to make phone calls without wires and devise ways to scan bones and soft tissue with medical instruments and to generate energy from the sun to, to drive a car. These are amazing things, but no one can discover the limits of the almighty, what he knows, what he can do and accomplish his because he is almighty. His power is immeasurable. His understanding is infinite. What can you know? What can I know in comparison to God? Nothing, because he knows everything, like everything for all time, past, present, future. He knows it all. We can measure the distance of the earth uh, from the North and South Pole. We can get estimates of how far things are, how close the sun is to us. And it's estimated that there's 5,000 stars visible from each hemisphere to the naked eye. And I read this. Um, It said 50-millimeter binoculars increase the number of stars to about 100,000, while observers using a three-inch telescope can spy about 5 million. Now, a modest estimation of how many stars are in our galaxy, it sits around 100 billion. And this is just our galaxy. Psalm 147, three through five, it says this of God. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. It was a pretty big undertaking and achievement when a billion stars were mapped by the European Space Agency. But how much more is it to conceive of them, to craft them, to place them in the heavens, to know them by name, to number them, cause them to shine and, and know them like the back of the, your hand or your own children. I mean, God, his understanding is infinite. So far, says, who can hinder God? God sees and knows. He knows a deceitful man from an honest one. Their wickedness does not elude him. Like he is very cognizant of all things. And he says, for an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Ouch. He's like comparing Job to being a donkey. And it's equivalent of saying like, you'll be wise when pigs fly. When this happens, Job, you'll have accomplished something. Uh, And he's, he's really rough on him. It's amazing that God has chosen to use actual donkeys to do his work. Like when Balaam was rebuked by his donkey and Jesus rode into Jerusalem in his triumphant entry on the back of a donkey into the sounds of Hosanna and people praising him. And God has shown his power and his grace by speaking through men like Zophar, like Job, like me and you. Zophar's words, they show us how men can be more beastly and senseless than animals when we stand in self-righteous judgment of others. So may we put that far from us. If we're going to say, you know, God knows your wickedness. Well, God knows my hypocrisy and wickedness as well. So let me not uh, parade that before anyone else. Instead, be marked by humility, grace, and mercy. Speak the truth, but God is the judge. He doesn't need us to stand in judgment for him. Job 11 verse 13. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away, And would not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, yes many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape and their hope loss of life. So far prescribes what Job needs to do, followed the basic pattern of what Eliphaz and Bildad had said before, that he needed to prepare his heart to draw near to God, repent of his sin, then he would be restored. Zophar and Job's friends, one thing is consistent is they were confident in God's power to forgive, God's power to help and restore people. The exhortation of Zophar is sound. His his theology is good. The problem was he and his friends were completely wrong about Job's situation. They misread it completely. Zophar's confidence, he knew the cause of Job's trials and the reasons why God allowed him to suffer were misguided. It's like they observed his pain and sorrow. They misdiagnosed the trouble as suffering from sin. And then they prescribed the wrong remedy. Did Job need to repent of sin? Yes, of course he did, as we all do. But what Zophar says concerning the wicked, for those who sin, they will not escape the judgment of a righteous God all whose sin will surely die. Their so- souls will be ruined forever, cut off for, without any hope in eternal destruction. So Zophar, he, it's like he relished this opportunity to accuse and condemn hurting Job when he could have edified and encouraged him. And for those who repent and trust God, this is a really insightful passage because these things that Zophar puts in front of him as a carrot or a reason to repent, a reason to turn to the Lord in faith. These are all things that we want. They're things that we should value. That you could forget your misery, that your life would be brighter, that you could have security, that you would have hope, right? We want these things. 1 John 1, 9, it assures believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of what Jesus has done on Calvary, he has atoned for our sins. We've been cleansed. We're without spot or condemnation before God. Zophar says that we can be steadfast without fear. And Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Can you imagine a life without fear, worries, and cares? That's the will of God for you today. That's not just the heavenly state. That is a life that Jesus offers us by grace through faith in him now. That is God's will for our lives, that we would rest in him and trust him to a degree that we would begin to experience this personally. In Zophar, in verse 16, Zophar says, we can forget our misery as waters that have passed away. It's like the flood has gone through, the earth is dried, and we're like, hey, we're back to, to be able to walk through this area. Our, our stuff isn't being swept away and flooded anymore. I think a lot of the excesses people fall prey to, some of the substance abuse, the immersion in work or entertainment or fleshly pursuits, they're really vain attempts to drown out or to numb feelings of guilt or shame or sorrow. And we can try to manage our inner pains and emotional pain, but we can never address the source. Only God can help and heal us people want a bright future. We want the hope that Zophar promises, but we don't always realize where it's found, that it's found in Christ alone. This isn't to say that believers don't see dark days or they don't have troubles like others, or, but we know in Christ there is always hope. There is a sure expectation of our salvation and deliverance for redemption. That's huge that God could redeem such an awful thing as what Job was going to, through. It provides such comfort and hope for us in the, in the smaller things that we're going through and the smaller things that you may go through or the huge stuff you may go through that you haven't yet. This word is for you. So far, explained how a believer's security is found in hope in God and his goodness. And we can rest in safety in those pastures of green led by the good shepherd, he won't leave or forsake us. And I wonder, believer, is this theoretical for you? You've read about it, you've heard about it, but you've yet to experience it for yourself. You know that Jesus is your savior, but at the same time, you are plagued by fear, insecurities, you feel vulnerable to attack and oppression. And the idea of life without fear or resting safe and secure, it's really foreign to your experience. Allow me to suggest this often happens when we take our eyes off Jesus and we allow regrets to weigh us down. We look to a future that's growing bleaker and darker with each passing day. We strain our eyes to look on the bright side of things. But in Christ, brothers and sisters, there's no darkness at all. When you look to him, things are not getting bleaker and darker. They're getting brighter and brighter with each passing day. It's Jesus who's opened our blind eyes. When you look into the sun, if you you were to try to look into the sun and stare at it, it would begin to damage your eyes and blind you. But when we look to Christ, things actually start getting clearer in our lives because we're aligning with his perspective We start to, when we begin to see him, how he is, eyes illuminated by his grace and love. We start to see even our troubles differently because we know he's with us. We know it's under God's control. So praise the Lord. He has not dealt with us according to our sins already. If he had, our souls would have been required of us. We would have already been tormented in hell but he's been gracious to us. He's been compassionate and merciful. The almighty God, he delights to use his awesome power not to destroy, but to save us, to redeem us, to help us by his grace. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 147, verses one through six. And this, see, this is just beautiful for the soul weary of life such refreshment. It says, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Praise the Lord! How good it is to praise our awesome God. He gathers the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up wounds. We've seen this fulfilled in Jesus, who came. It's estimated there's just under eight billion people on the planet today. God knows them all. He knows billions of stars, the trillions of stars and the billions of galaxies that exist. He knows them all by name and he knows us, us of little faith. He looks upon you. He looks upon me with love and compassion because his love and understanding is eternal because it is infinite. He knows you. He looks upon you with divine favor. He does not dwell in some far off place charting out stars and comets. He's with us. He binds up our wounds. He lifts us up. He holds us close. He lets us settle down in a pasture of green because he is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's come to him today in our pains and praise him because he is good, because he leads us by those still waters and pastures of green, and in him we find rest for our souls. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace, and we praise you because you are awesome in all your ways and your ways are past finding out, and yet you've revealed yourself to us, and you've given us your word. You've given us these examples and such wisdom that's beyond us. Your, your ways are beyond comprehension, and yet and, and your power is infinite, and you could destroy all in a moment. But you've chosen to delight to show mercy to us because you love us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And forgive us when we have focused on this bleak world and a dark situation and painful circumstances and and how hopeless everything seems when you are our hope, an eternal hope, a hope that we can enter into and rejoice in now and, and the best is yet to come because you are coming and we will be with you and you will never leave or forsake us. And thank you that not one word has failed from your good promises to us. That in this life and in the life beyond, in the eternal state, we will be with you and never be apart. I pray, Lord, that we would draw near to you. We would humble ourselves before you so you might lift us up, that you might open our eyes to see you at work, to see you doing your wonders. Thank you, Lord, and we praise you for your awesomeness. It just blows my mind how awesome you are in your goodness and your grace and your compassion, your mercy. Lord, you are good, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.